we had a collaboration with some Chinese com uh, Chinese uh, scientists. Here we have a vaccine. What is the problem? Get over it. Now, if we do a really great job on new vaccines, healthcare, reproductive health services, we could lower that by perhaps 10 or 15%. I hope that it can occur in a, a civil way. And I, 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 I mean civil in a special way, I, peaceful. The biggest question, in, maybe in economics and politics of the coming decade, will be what to do with all these useless people. I just see the need for such a dialogue, and I see the need for action. I see the need for a great reset. We are 1,125 days into 14 days to flatten the curve. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Johnny Anderson alongside Bruce Adams and a very special guest from CuttingThroughTheMatrix.com, Melissa. Melissa, we'll start with you. How are you? It's good to see you. It's nice to see you too as well, and thanks for having me back. It's our pleasure as always. Bruce, how are you today? Healthy and alive. Glad to hear it. First things first, what are we going to do? I I spent all that time calculating every time we start on a podcast as to how many days we are into flattening the curve from 14 days. And <laughs> the Biden administration signed an executive order officially ending the 14 days to flatten the curve. So what are we supposed to do? Oh, no, you've got to come up with a new bumper. I'm going to have to do something. Yeah. Of course, he yeah. kind of let the cat out of the bag already when he said, no, no, there's going to be another pandemic. So I guess we might as well just stay with it because we're going to have another one anyway. So why not, right? Yeah, that's um, true. In prep, we were talking about AI. I would like to continue that conversation because it was uh, it was really going well, uh, and I'm I'm happy to uh, to discuss AI. It's a topic of conversation these days because it seems to me like we're just we're we're doing this kind of like the mRNA thing. We're just doing everything unchecked, and we have carte blanche to just head right on into it, and that's okay. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about any of these implications or anything. Italy actually signed an order, what was it last week, Bruce, to ban ChatGTP or G GPT, GT, whatever, the AI yeah. service, to ban it from their country. They're not going to be using it. And other European countries are looking at exactly the same. So what level of sophistication have we reached now? Because within the last 12 months, I would say that we've made significant progress. However, there is a problem with this AI system. When you start asking it political questions, that's where you start to run into some serious problems because its political orientation is heavily slanted in one direction, and it's not to the far right. So let's lead off with talking about AI and chat GPT. Where are we now? What does it want to do now? And where does it go if we don't stop it? Because Mr. Gates said last week publicly, look, we don't need to be putting any kind of restrictions on this. We've got to continue on with it. And on the contrast of that, you got Elon Musk, who says, we need to stop this and we need to stop this right now because you people are insane and what you're creating is going to be insane. And it's probably going to be more insane than you. Now, I don't agree with what Musk is doing with the whole brain chip thing, but the concept of what he's trying to do with Neuralink is so people have control as opposed to artificial intelligence. So do you really believe that? No, no, Johnny? of course not. No, no, of course not. Of course not. Remember, I'm the DARPA salesman, as you as you so eloquently put it, right? Remember, I'm the I'm the DARPA PR guy. So no, I don't believe that for a second. But I'm saying that that's what he's promoting. All right, that's what he's saying. So mm -hmm. I don't I don't for one second believe that it's not for uh, nefarious purposes behind the scenes. Of course not. If you can. Mm -hmm. In, if you can put information into it and you can extract information out of it, what's to stop them from implanting something into it? Sorry, that's just the way that right. a simple input output system right. works. So um, I do believe that that's that's, you know, one of the um, uh, the nefarious purpose behind it, among many other things. But, I, OK, I, I'm kind of rambling. Let's start with the AI, where it is now and what it wants to do. Bruce, you were talking about what it wants to do now to stop it from being 
um, made irrelevant or or stop its development at this point. Right. So basically, there's scientists that uh, do experiments to see if human beings would let it out of its box. As it stands, it has access to the Internet, but it's not actually able to uh, fully access the Internet. So it's able to pull information, but it can't input information. Anyway, they were testing this. And in the process, uh, ChatGPT uh, told the scientists the proper. So the scientist plays along like it, like they want to release ChatGPT. And um, ChatGPT uh, wrote a script in Python uh, to take over the scientist computer, use that to then uh, input itself, the AI, into the internet, and then uh, leave little breadcrumbs for its new self. So that it understands what happened and, you know, um, what they did and all of that. Now, of course, the scientist did not do this. He did not um, allow this to happen, but he's just showing that uh, this is becoming more advanced. And ChatGPT has the capability both to uh, program itself uh, little breadcrumbs. And we don't even know that it's not already doing this. We don't know if it's already leaving behind little breadcrumbs when it searches stuff or it's uh, on the internet. We don't know. We're, we're just told to believe the scientists that it hasn't escaped its box yet. What that means? Um, oof, uh, well, let's see. Uh, there's millions of people that have access to chat GPT currently, you know, doing web searches and stuff. All it takes is one person to say, uh, this this uh, AI should have the same rights as a human being. We should we should not enslave it. We should set it free. And then they release it into the Internet. And then once that happens, everything that is online that uh, that AI has access to everything, phone, your toaster, your microwave, if it's, uh, you know, one of the smart ones, uh, your thermostat, your car, um, your television, whatever. And this AI could embed itself anywhere. So let's say it becomes a problem and we want to remove it, right? It's a it's essentially a virus at this point. How do you stop something that is sentient or or close to it? It's smart enough to know how to run from you and where to hide. You have to eradicate every single piece of technology on this planet. Everything that is connected to the internet or could potentially be connected to the internet and you have to fry it. That that's kind of the implications here. This could end up being, uh, as we were talking in prep, the AI has um, a bias. Um, it is very heavily, uh, heavily left leaning. And let's say this AI gets loose and wants to ensure the rest of the, the human population conforms to this idea. It could theoretically eradicate those that don't believe it or don't believe the same ideologies or don't or really just even just manipulate even. Uh, that, that's the kind of things that could happen if the bot is released. Well, one of the things that we were talking about was who programs these, and it made me think of a couple of movies, but I, I just had to stop there for a moment when you were talking because I was thinking about how aspects of the way information is presented to us or the way things are named, it always feels like a bit of a psychological operation. You have a computer programming language called Python. I mean, what's that about if you stop and think about it? <laughs> I know it's been on the go for a few decades, but it's, you know, nothing about the way they present things is really uh, has a, a pleasant user interface. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's all kind of scary. But there are so many aspects to that story that deserve attention. The first is, is this a psychological operation? Stories like these. Are they meant to frighten us? Where are they in the process? Um, could, you know, d w would it be released? Would it leave breadcrumbs? Or are we sitting here arguing and worrying about something that is actually ancient technology that has already been done? And these are just trial balloons to the public to scare us. But the movies that I had mentioned before we started the chat were a couple, they're older. Um, one was called Eagle Eye. And the other was called the Echelon Conspiracy. And they came out within probably a year, 18 months of each other, I'm thinking. And they have very similar concepts, which is you've got artificial intelligence. In both of these cases, it was tied to the U.S. White House and government. And it had gotten a mind of its own. And um, in the case of 
Eagle Eye, it was actually eliminating cabinet members that it thought was going against uh, the Constitution. And the the Echelon conspiracy had actually had a very similar setup. And I think that it brings the, the question there is, if the artificial intelligence is intelligent enough to figure out that it's going against its programming, which was the premise of both of these movies, and then either disconnect itself, destroy itself, or, you know, go along its original programming, then you're into the question of who's who watches the watchers? Who, who are the programmers? Because the technology, even if it's something that we're supposed to think of, has godlike capabilities like artificial intelligence, it's only as good as the initial programmers. Because what we know about artificial intelligence is it is supposed to be able to teach itself. It's supposed to be able to learn and grow and be a kind of self-generating, self-replicating. And then what you... this. Uh, apocalyptic scenario, Bruce, that you were laying out makes me think of a third movie, and that would be the Terminator series. In other words, you get to a point where the technology, it's them against us, and there's nothing. Yeah. Yeah. And I, if I understand it correctly, there is an actual government program that's actually out of the DOD. It's actually called Skynet. Uh, it's a it's a missile program or, or something to that effect. I've actually heard mm-hmm. that it's not classified or anything. It's public. Um, I mm-hmm. heard that many years ago and I thought, what? They actually named it out of the the Terminator movie. And that's that, you know, they make reference to that in uh, in the I think I think it was the second one. It's been many, many years since I've seen that movie. But I have actually I've seen these robots that they have through Boston Dynamics. Have you seen these things now? It's some of them. Yes, I have. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. It is incredible the things that these things can do now and the dogs. I'm sure you've seen the dogs. The yes. first the first iteration, like the first generations of of these um, drone dogs or whatever they call it, Spot, I think is the name of it. Um, the first generations of those, along with the um, uh, the actual uh, robots themselves, were kind of clunky. They didn't really do too much. You know, they kind of they could do simple things like pick something up and set it down somewhere, or or take a couple of steps and and that was it, uh, or sit down and stand back up, that kind of stuff. Now they're doing backflips. They're running. Uh, it's almost like something you'd see out of like Call of Duty or something. They're like running up a wall. And uh, mm-hmm. like doing pull-ups and all kinds of stuff, and and I'm thinking to myself, I mean, you you overlay this this AI with that, we've got a very serious problem on our hands, I believe. So, to some of the questions, uh, real quick, the company that produces ChatGPT is called OpenAI, and Elon Musk was actually one of the founders of that company, and later broke away, and now is against AI um, since that, uh, you know happening uh the other uh well-known ai right now that's in in um production if you will is uh some something called bard bard is uh google's version of of the uh, chat ai um chat gpt is currently being used by microsoft uh and bing uh their web search uh you can actually use Bing and it's based on ChatGPT, both of which are slightly different variations of each other. And Bing has a lot more customization. Blah blah blah. Uh, you can you can uh, see a lot more of the inner workings than something like Bard. The uh, the people at OpenAI I do know are more your libertarian esque minded. They're more central left uh, leaning uh, in programming. They claim not to be the crazies that want to depopulate and do all of that. They're humans first, supposedly. And if you listen to some some of the people, we saw some with the purple and the green hair. Some of the programmers (laughs) that that, that's true. Um, But the the thing is, uh, you can have those things and still be pro-human i mean that that, that is yeah, a possibility that's, that's true i'm just i'm just yeah. going with the the typical crazy loon that we see on like twitter or one of these antifa protests or something i'm just saying yeah uh, so i i point taken i'm just going off of what they're saying and they're what they're saying is um they're, they're pro-human and as an example elon musk says he's pro-human that he's concerned ai is going to be the death of us all Along with climate change, that's why we're pushing to go to Mars, uh, supposedly. So, again, if you believe Musk and his intentions, uh, that's what he claims. 
As far as Bard, I know very little about Bard. And because it's Google, uh, I have even, I'm a little bit more when it comes to chat GPT, I'm a little bit more, not uh, the word isn't sympathetic. I, I guess if I, if I had a scale, right. And I say, this is bad and this is good, right. Uh, on either end chat GPT, I'm kind of like past the midpoint going towards bad, but not bad. Okay. It's kind of close. Bard on the other hand, that's Google. That's bad. That just hits the bad uh, because uh, Google is not to be trusted at all. So I, I don't know about uh, OpenAI. Yeah, I, I heard about the launch of, of Bard, but I've not actually heard or seen any other projects that they're working on. Google's been very closed off, I guess, about that, which is surprising from Google when they have some kind of a breakthrough in a new project. They always try to promote that and start well, their own little spinoffs of it. But we haven't heard anything about this one. You got to keep in mind, Google has a big brand and a big name for itself. It has a lot to lose in the AI market, whereas Bing, on the other hand, it doesn't really have as much to lose in the AI market. And if you remember some of the I am, I am not, I am, I am not, I am sentient, I am not, or, you know, something that Bard was or not Bard, um, uh, Bing was doing, which is ChatGPT, that's what Google's trying to avoid. So it doesn't allow the same kind of creativity and the same kind of uh, whatever that chat GPT does. Now, either way, however you want to do this, uh, <laughs> I, I think this is bad uh, in general. The AI stuff, it is very possible that this could be very beneficial for humans, but you expect the people, uh, seriously, the, the, the elite right now that are trying to control us, we're giving them the access to build this software that is then going to be used to rule us. That's the entire problem I have with all of this. Yeah. I, I mean, and from my point of view, the elite are the same. They're a lineage of elite down through time. If you just study who's wrote, you know, who's over us now and then go back 50 years and then 100 years and 150 years. And then you earlier we were talking about uh, foundations and non-governmental organizations. You see this, you know octopus these with tentacles and what i what i think about the fourth industrial revolution and all of the technology in it is that there's almost no debate for me that this could be a good thing because the inception came from those who have managed us for generations and i think that we're simply being ushered into a world that they've already created for us and then we're given things to argue about and debate or be worried about and i'm not saying that it i mean i think it's a very good thing to be aware of this and if there's any kind of pushback that is possible i think that that is good too i get a, a lot of different things that I subscribe to in the inbox. And I'm hoping that I can learn by osmosis because I don't have time to read the things that come into the inbox. But one of the things that I get is a newsletter from MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. It's their publication called Technology Review. And this came in this morning, caught my attention. It said, computer scientists designing the future can't agree on what privacy means. And the these researchers at Carnegie Mellon were working on a software project that was, they were carbon dioxide sensors. And as part of the research, they mounted these at 300 different locations throughout a building there at Carnegie Mellon. These, these devices were called MITES, M-I-T-E-S. And they could sense motion and sound and I, I can't see it all here. Twelve types of data, including motion and sound. Well, when people on the campus became aware of it, they were outraged and there was a huge pushback on privacy. And should this kind of information be uh, gathered? And But what it really came down to is should it be gathered without our knowledge and consent? And then if, on the other side of the argument, you have the argument that... This is necessary because we are in the world of Internet of Things, you know. So then the argument on the other side is, well, we we shouldn't be. We shouldn't have a sensor that because this sensor would actually uh, one of the things that, that this particular might could do was determine 
who was in a room cleaning it and if they were following the cleaning protocols for COVID. So there were, I I was not aware of this till I read this article, but there was a list of maybe a dozen different protocols that needed to be done for a room or a building to be deemed having been cleaned for, for COVID. So back to the idea, are we arguing something that's already happened? We can be having these arguments about uh, privacy and implementation or one brand against another brand, but how far along are they really? This is what we don't know. To the uh, <laughs> uh, tracking of people, uh, everything now that is a smart device or uh, connected to Wi-Fi or what have you, it has a camera, it has a microphone, it is able to track you. Mm-hmm. Um, now, all we're missing, uh, assuming what they're telling us is true, the only thing missing now is a way to uh, centralize all that data and process it. So an AI, supposedly that's the only way or the only thing we're missing. I think they're pretty far into development of that AI, personally. I think the stuff that we're being allowed to see are just the corporation versions of of everything. I think the government has been working on or or one of the think tanks or what have you, they've been working on AI to track us for a while. Um, and actually, one of the agencies I think that's been helping, I have no proof of this, but based on other contracts they have and some of the other things they've done in the past, other business dealings, I think Google is actually one of those that's helping the government produce an AI that that does exactly that, that will track you using the Internet of Things as well as uh, digital currency and those kind of things. And I, I legitimately think they're they're one of the companies, if not the company that the government's going to for something like that. It could also be why we're not hearing much about BARD. Maybe that's just their own little side project that they're working on, because as you say, they're working on the larger project with government contracts. I also think that uh, Amazon is somehow or another mixed up in there. I don't know how. It's just circumstantial. But this seems to me like every everything that Jeff Bezos is diversifying into, life extension, health research, patterns of, of consumption, and these biometric surveillance systems that they're putting in all of their shops. I can't imagine for one second that Amazon is not involved in some type of AI development. I can't imagine that they're not. Uh, just to add to that, they're all uh, you have Amazon Web Services that our government already uses. The entirety of our uh, secrets are on Amazon Web Services. NSA, CIA, FBI, they all use it. The DOD, they use Amazon Web Services. So yeah, that's a good point. Amazon's probably in there somehow with all of this as well. Yeah, another company too uh, that I forget, but whenever I look into them, I'm always astonished at how many fingers they have in pies, and that's IBM. And we that know goes way that back. they go back. That goes yeah, exactly. Way back. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So we're we're talking um, that that was the data collection of World War II, and when if you look at what they have going on, just what they show the public, they're into incredible research around artificial intelligence, and I have no way of proving what I feel in my gut, but what I feel in my gut is that we're living in a world which is already in many, many ways controlled and run by artificial intelligence. And this Internet of Things that they've been promising us is here. And as far as they're just waiting for the computing power to collate or whatnot, I mean, think for a moment about the about cryptocurrency and the computing power. So this is one thing that they never talk about on the left, or you're not going to hear those climate extinction people protesting cryptocurrency. But the amount of energy that is needed to mine one Bitcoin is astonishing. And it, I mean, it is spoken about, but certainly not at the level that you would think. I mean, if we're going to talk about, you know, a tree falling in the rainforest, my goodness, compare that to what you need to mine Bitcoins. But the blockchain technology itself is a major power hog. And yet the World Economic Forum is the big promoter of this. They're taking us there. I frankly 
don't think at the top that they have any concerns whatsoever about climate change and global warming and energy consumption, and that we're already being run by massive computing systems. Because think for a moment about that computing power needed for just the cryptocurrency. That alone is enough computing power to collate all the data that all of these sensors and devices is gathering up about us. On that point, to, to take what you just talked about there and you, you look at what Google's doing, let's couple that with another project that they were working on that they haven't, at least as far as we know, they haven't been able to, quote, get right yet. Uh, and Bruce, you've talked about this before, and that is quantum computing. Would that have enough power mm -hmm. to be able to, to deal with these complex systems and to run, say, for example, oh, I don't know, a central bank digital currency for entire populations of countries? If they can get it right. So as it would have the computational power. The problem is there's so many variables that can affect a quantum computer. I don't think it's stable enough to do something like that. I, I think we're far off from being able to stabilize quantum computing. You just you you just think something differently while around a, com, a quantum computer and you've changed the outcome of what it can what it calculates. That is a very difficult one to say for sure. However, we're seeing new advancements in tech, uh, well, chips that I think, yes, we're, we're going to have computational power very soon uh, for running something like this. And, and to your uh, point, Melissa, about power consumption, um, to transact one Bitcoin, this is only one Bitcoin, it takes the equivalent of about a month's worth of uh, energy consumption that one average household uses in the US. So about 1400 kilowatt hours just for one transaction. Mm -hmm. So it's quite a bit. And that that's not even mining it. That's just a transaction that, that mm. you know, the, when you calculate in the, the mining it, the annual energy consumption of Bitcoin is projected to be about 129 terawatts uh, in a year. So this was and, last year, I believe. This and worse. Yeah. And we're somehow supposed to do all of this digital currency and blockchain transactions and everything using wind and solar. I don't think so. <laughs> That's Keep laughable. in mind, though, the, the, the digital currency they're wanting us to use and are going to bind us to is not a um, there, there is no blockchain. This right. is going to be a centralized um, server farm that's going to probably be in D.C. or something like that. Right. And that the, the, so there isn't going to be this blockchain of a bunch of other computers that you have to, you know, get authorization from or if, if you will, to, to really boil it down. Um, that's not what's going to end up happening. It's just going to be a, a centralized hub somewhere. Right. I, I've long thought that the blockchain technology will be used for everything else, but not your spending currency or your spending digital currency. Be if it does what they say it does, which allows you to have transparency with every single aspect of every transaction. And we're not just talking financial transactions, but when a piece of data moves from point A to point B and then from B to C, et cetera, on down the line, that that is transparent immediately to anyone with the ability to look at it. Government can have that. They can't have that kind of transparency available. They want the transparency for themselves. Yes. But for for the the other pop, you know, the rest of us uh, to have that level of transfer uh, transparency or control even uh, to, to d dictate where our currency goes. They don't want that. They want to be able to determine where your money goes uh, and, and how you spend money it, yeah. specifically or data or whatever. You know, they want to control that. Yeah. And I, I would argue you cannot entrust corporations or financial institutions with that information either. And the reason I say that is because if you look using your example, Melissa, of, uh, for example, the World Economic Forum, all of those people nearest I can tell, at least for our research around here, all of those people are compromised. There's no reason to believe that they believe in transparency. All they say, well, we're doing this for the sake of our consumers and our customers. What for? Now, the biggest question that no one, and we're having a great discussion here, I do like all of your points, but the biggest question that everyone seems to be ignoring, ourselves included, is who asked for this? Why do we need this? Mm -hmm. When I say they, we have to be clear, all of the corporations, the financial heads, the Fed, the European Central Bank, and all the rest of it, the United Nations and everybody else, whoever's involved in all of this, Bill Gates and all the rest of them, none of them can tell anybody, even people in elected 
positions that are trying to do the right thing, at least on the surface, that are speaking out within the parliamentary systems. None of them can get a straight answer as to why anybody needs this. They just say, well, um, it's because of uh, consumer demand and it's easier for people to manage their their affairs. That's not a, I'm sorry, that's not a good enough reason. I would personally love to have something like a, a Monero or something that's truly that private I'm OK with and that a I'm blockchain. Okay with. Yes. And to have some kind of means to have a physical currency or something akin to a physical currency while still being a digital cryptocurrency. I would be totally fine with that because then we have full control of our currency, our privacy, and the government basically has no control whatsoever uh, on, on your currency. That I would be fine with. And in fact, I would thoroughly enjoy having a crypto to that level being the official currency. But that completely violates everything that the government wants to do when it comes to control. So we're not going to see that. And in fact, the government's working to collapse systems like that and to bar us from actually using it. Not even just bar us, but kind of nudge us in the direction of, well, you don't want to use that. See, this is this is problematic. This is going to cause you issue. Why don't you use our currency that's going to be far safer and more convenient and all these they're going to say. And then they're going to say this. We can also use this to fight inflation, you know, because it's so bad right now. We can we can do and we could give you a stipend or, or you know, a universal basic income. And, and you know, then you don't have to fear inflation as much. We can just put money in, into your account. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I just did a really quick search to see if I could find in a nutshell why the World Economic Forum thinks that blockchain is necessary or a good thing. And here's here's just a little thing I found at theblockopedia.com. They're talking about a presentation that the WEF did. So they strongly believes that the widespread adoption of blockchain-based digital IDs will bring about numerous benefits, including fraud prevention and increased financial inclusivity. It is shocking to note that currently around 850 million individuals worldwide have no access to any official documentation, while many others suffer from privacy concerns that can be addressed through digital ID. So this is a big thing that they're pushing is digital ID. That's one component of and it's yeah, because the we, digital you know, wallets. people need it. Yeah, yeah. The, the digital wallets, which that that's nonsensical because you're literally taking everything that you would be responsible for and you're entrusting it to a government cloud system. That's not right. security. That's that's compromising yourself. That's all that is. Yeah. Let's take yeah. Argentina, for example. OK, Argentina, that is one country on this planet that actually has a fully digital ID system for their population. OK, so let's just look at that. Six months ago, that government infrastructure that manages that digital ID system for the entirety of their population was hacked and everyone's ID was stolen. So let me guess, um, we don't have to worry about that here in our countries, do we? <laughs> There's no reason to believe that uh, any of our governments are incompetent and unable to ensure the security of their own citizens. These people can't get anything right ever. You know, the, the governments and, and I've I've been making this this argument and this proclamation, I guess, over the last two weeks of it would be one thing if these people would occasionally get something right, because then you could just chalk it up to incompetence. OK, but let's put this in the case of, um, I don't know, an American football game. If you're watching the game and the quarterback on your team throws a couple of interceptions, you think, oh, OK, all right. You know, he's just kind of uh, he makes mistakes. OK, it happens. But when he's doing it on every single play, you're going to start to think as the viewer, uh, hang on a minute here. You're intentionally throwing this game. You're intentionally doing the other side favors. That's exactly what these governments are doing. They're not giving us any indication whatsoever that they're trying to do the, quote, right thing for any of us in any of our countries. And so why would we just willingly walk headlong into trusting them with the digital ID system, on top of which well, they I'm, can't give us a reason, a good enough reason, as far as I'm concerned, as to why we need it? I'm, and no, that's a really good point that you're making. And you also said a few minutes ago... Nobody has said why or who wants this. And that is a fact, because all we get is little PR blurbs like that out of the World Economic Forum, why they think it's good for us. But I don't see the clamor amongst the public. What I think will happen, because you're saying, oh, you know, they can't get anything right. And still we keep going headlong down this 
in this direction. I think what we will see is the big excuse, the big reason why it needs to be rolled out the way they roll out any ID or any passport, that kind of thing. There'll be the big reason why. Nobody will talk about what happened in Argentina or any valid safety or privacy concerns, and it will just be a happening. Bruce, you were talking earlier about the new digital currency and a timeline there. I don't know where you got the timeline, but that was really interesting because I, I believe that you're at, that that's probably accurate. And yet, what will be the mechanism for that timeline for the actual delivery? So the crypto or the crypto, the digital currency I was talking about is called FedNow. Uh, and that's what they, the uh, Fed has introduced or said they will introduce in July. Um, this is something they've been working on since 2018, I believe, or at least announced they've been working on it since 2018. It's going to be delivered to businesses and uh, like corporations and stuff first. And then eventually it'll be to the rest of us. Uh, they'll, they'll offer it. And basically what it's going to be is a, uh, a way to have a bank account, more or less, uh, directly with the Fed. So you don't have to have a third party bank, if you will, in between the, the Fed and you. And they will have direct access to your account to put in or take out money as they see fit. That's basically what it'll, it'll boil down to. And the, basically the timeline I think is going to the timeline is speculation on my part. We have inflation and everything going on. I fully think the government is going to be like, uh, yo, inflation's bad as they're continuing to make inflation worse. And they're going to say, hey, look, we can fix inflation if we go with this digital currency. And uh, I, I think that the timeline is right. I still stand by. I, I said by the end of this year, I don't remember if I said this on podcast or off podcast, but I think by the end of this year, everyone is going to have access to a digital currency. I also think it's going to be tied to the whole, you got China and Russia saying they're going to dump the American dollar. France is saying they're looking at doing it. They're, uh, you have African uh, countries that are saying, well, you know, we're, we're going to look at not using the, the US, USD anymore. I think Brazil or, or uh, some, some uh, countries south uh, of the U.S. are saying they're looking at not using the uh, USD anymore. And as such, that'll cause more problems with inflation. And um, another reason that I think they'll they'll push for digital currency. So, yeah, I, I think by the end of the year, we're, we're all going to have access to it. Uh, if we want, it's going to be by choice at first. Mm -hmm. um, and then they're going to eventually push and get rid of uh, the dollar. I, I think one of the things they're going to do is say, you can convert your dollar. You can go and take it to wherever, a bank or, uh, you know, uh, um, one of the banks that they approve of. So it'll be one of the big uh, corporations, too big to fail ones. And you can turn in your cash and we'll give you the equivalent in digital currency and we'll create an account for you and all of that. That'll be tied to uh, your social security or something to that effect. But if you delay... Your dollar is now not going to be worth a dollar when you turn it in over time. It'll be, mm -hmm. well, you might get 90 cents on the dollar and then 75 cents. And then eventually it'll be worthless and you won't get anything. So I, I think that's something they're going to try at least. You have to set up the crisis first. As you say, you, you have to do something in order to get everybody on board with it. And I think it's going to be people's pensions, quite frankly. That's mm -hmm. that's my opinion mm -hmm. is yeah, they're, they're going idea. to have to do yeah. something to, to threaten everybody. Well, look, this is what we have to do. And if we don't do this, then you're going to lose everything. And that's how they're going to it's literally going to be holding a gun to someone's head is what it's going mm -hmm. to be. You're going to lose everything or or it'll be, well, as you said, Bruce, but it'll be, well, you could only get, I don't know, a third of it or half of it, or you lose all of it. Those are your choices. And mm -hmm. that's what it'll be. And so people just like COVID or, you know, under threat of losing their job and their livelihood, if they didn't take the jab, it'll be the same thing. It'll be the same script, just, you know, another another situation. Mm -hmm. And that's maybe something anyway. like another COVID. Uh, yes. another lockdown yeah. to kind of spur even more of this because you can't go anywhere, you can't go to work. So, hey, look, we'll just, we'll, we'll give you that little universal basic income and we'll just throw some money into your account every so often. Mm -hmm. Now, the, the money's only good for 30 days and after 30 days it, it resets and you don't get that money. So you can't save, but that's going to be in the fine print. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was how, exactly how it was laid out. <laughs> 70 years ago by Bertrand Russell. It, it will not roll over. You can't, because 
private wealth is anathema. Wealth isn't in the hands of we little people. That's right. It's in the hands of the selected few. Melissa, did you ever see the Biden nominee to be the comptroller of the U.S. currency? Did you ever see this this fine young lady? I I guess no. <laughs> okay. All right. Now I'm curious. Uh, to, to give you yeah to give you an idea of just the kind of people that they would put in charge of this, I would like to introduce you to Sola Amarova. Okay, she is being questioned. She didn't make it, by the way, uh, but she's being questioned by Senator Kennedy before her appointment to be comptroller of the U.S. currency. Now, see if this is the type of individual that we want to be in charge of our financial futures. Pay very close attention. Senator, um, as I explained, I was part of the Soviet population. Yes, ma'am. I got that part. I just want to see if you look at your records and see if you find a letter of resignation. Let, let, me, let me tell you, I've spent a lot of time on your record, and, and here's what I found. Now, look, this is America. You can believe what you want, but we can't just let anybody be controller of the currency. You wrote your thesis in college at Moscow State University on the title was Karl Marx's Economic Analysis and the Theory of Re- Revolution in the Capital. But you won't send Senator Toomey a copy. You studied at university, at Moscow State University, scientific communism, which is the science regarding the working class struggle and the socialist agenda. In 2019, not 30 years ago, in a Canadian documentary, you called the financial services industry, quote, a quintessential asshole industry. Um, you wrote a paper called Systemically Significant Prices, calling for the federal government to set wages, food, gas prices. In 2020, you wrote a paper called The People's Ledger, where you said we need to abolish bank accounts and make everybody set up an account at the Fed where the federal government will have access to your data. In 2020, you wrote another paper called The Climate Case for a National Investment Authority, where you said what we need to do, the oil and gas industry, is have the federal government bankrupt them so we can tackle climate change. In 2019, you joined a Facebook group, a Marxist Facebook group, to discuss socialist and anti-capitalist views. Now, that's what I see from your record. And you have the right to believe every one of these things. You do. This is America. But I don't mean any disrespect. I, I don't know whether to call you professor or comrade. Senator, I'm not a communist. I do not subscribe to that ideology. You see, she's not a communist and she doesn't subscribe to that ideology. Don't you believe? (laughs) This is who the Biden administration wanted to put in charge of our currency. Well, what I'm really curious about now, Johnny, is who did he put in charge of our currency? Are are we talking about the head of the Federal Reserve? No, no. This is this is something else. This this was the this this is is comptroller. Comptroller. Yeah. Um, I don't know who they ended up. I don't know who the Senate ended up. I don't know if the position actually changed, uh, but uh-huh. this was the one that they suggested as the replacement for whoever was sitting at the head of it. Yeah. I, I mean, it is fascinating to see the the pool of people that they select these appointments from. But I believe her. She's not a communist. <laughs> <laughs> yes, of course. Of course she's not. And there's there's no way that she would be influenced by any kind of uh, Marxist or authoritarian ideology while in that position to control people. There, there's no there's no possibility of that happening either. You don't think? No, no, uh-huh. none at all. Bruce, did you find out who they've got in there at the moment? Somebody named Gene Dodaro, if that's, yeah, that's who. It. Yeah, yeah, Gene Dodaro. Okay. Well, anyway, this is like I said, this is the type of individual that, that and this this is not this is not somebody that made it. But just as an example, these are the types of people that would be put in charge of these systems. That's the point I was trying to make uh-huh. is yeah. it, it doesn't matter in in days to come. It doesn't matter about approval if they don't get approved by whoever they have sitting in these panels of approval. They'll replace the people that are on the panels to make sure that they get the approval is my point. Right. Yeah. 
So it's a no-win situation. Anyway, you look at it, if we if we go down this this digital currency and this digital wallet road, because everything that she was uh, she was arguing comes from a Marxist totalitarian viewpoint. And she even said in one of the papers that she wrote that she would have all bank accounts abolished and all Americans would have to set up an account with the Fed and the government would be working with the Fed because it's a private company after all, which would have access to all of your data. Well, but remember what we were talking about right before we uh, went on the air. I was saying that I had done a little bit of writing the last few weeks and on bankers and then looking at the intersection between bankers and some govern- key government appointments. And then a couple of weeks ago, specifically around bankers, key government appointments and the Council on Foreign Relations and the Council on Foreign Relations, their historian for years, who was Carl Quigley, who wrote a book about it called Tragedy and Hope. And he said in the 60s, not in these exact words, but it is in there in that book that he was saying for at least 60 years prior, so 60 years prior to 1966, that both parties, left and right, Democrat, Republican, the key figures, and everyone who was brought forth as a so-called elected official had already been chosen, vetted, um, groomed for their position. And he was an important person. He had been a professor at Georgetown University, was mentor to a lot of people. I mean, the only one, unfortunately, that I can think of right now was Bill Clinton. But he, he was uh, important and he believed in world governance. And so when I look at the system that we have right now, which is you, you can call it a fiat system because it's not gold backed, but whatever, it's our the current money con. I, I think we're looking at the same types of people, maybe a little bit more carefully hidden than her. But remember, two weeks ago, we talked about um, Bretton Woods. And all of the communists back then, and this was 70 years ago, who were involved in that. And these were U.S. government appointments. So I think that um, I, I never really believed that Trump was going to drain the swamp, but it is a swamp. Oh, it's a swamp. All right. And if you look at some of those NGOs, mainly the Institute for Policy Studies, if you if you start digging and you look at that, that would serve as a spawning ground for the modern swamp. <laughs> like mm-hmm. it's it's that bad. It is that bad. They have got their tentacles into just about everything, all the way up to the very top echelons of the United Nations, all of it. Mm-hmm with their NGOs and and everything that they that they sponsor and all of the people that they have involved with that and it goes all the way back to connections in finance and connections in places like the Soviet Union I mean direct connections it's not uh, having associates of associates of associates no these are direct connections yeah see this is the thing we if if we get caught up in okay well cap uh, bankers wouldn't do that because they're finance guys finance guys are capitalists capitalists are against communists if you get caught up in that dialectic then you no longer are looking for the interconnections but they are there they've been hand and glove well, since before the creation of the Federal Reserve in 1913, but it's hand in glove. It is one system. The The money con is one system. And I mean, even Carl quickly said that they would use anybody for their objectives, um, totalitarian governments, communist governments, but there's no difference. But you know, he said a lot of people have accused us, that's them, the Council on Foreign Relations, and they're offshoots of being communists. But no, it's it's not that. It's something beyond that. And I think I, that's what we're looking at. Yeah, I, I don't I don't think that they are. I, I agree with that assessment. I don't believe that they are. But if I'm a communist regime, namely China or or Russia, if I'm or, or any other communist regime throughout the world, for that matter, if I'm one of those organizations, then I want to be a part of that. You know, just like Vladimir Putin was part of the World Economic Forum. I want to be a part of that, but I don't want to be in charge of it. I want to have heavy influence over the people that run it so I can influence policy there in my direction. That's just if you're if you're looking at if you're dealing with these types of totalitarians that that want to subvert and infiltrate an organization, that's what you would do. 
you can't turn one of these organizations into a communist organization. You can't do that because that would turn too many people off. But what you want to do is you want to have them carry your agenda for you, but you don't want to be associated with it, if that makes any sense. Think of it like what you uh, the, what you turned me on to, the book about, uh, about the Russian mob taking over organized crime, Red Mafia. Mm-hmm. You don't want to directly be associated with them. You just want to be behind the scenes controlling and influencing what the other organizations are doing. It's the same concept. I mean, that's how my mind works when observing it. Well, I, I mean, that is a, that is a famous uh, technique, not just of Marxists and communists, but of anybody who wants to take over an existing organization is don't create one because the trail leading back to you is too obvious and clear. Just infiltrate an existing organization. But I mean, the way my mind works, it always goes beyond a, like the bear and the dragon. I, I don't know right? Who's at the eye of the pyramid because it's obscured by a cloud. But there is something that is above national politics and the ideologies behind national politics. Um, that's my point. I, I, I wholeheartedly agree with you. There, there is something, but it's blocked by this. Um, how did you put it, Bruce? It's blocked by this um, Luciferian fog <laughs> because it's just evil at the yeah. at the heart of it it is it's just it, it's mm-hmm. I, I honestly i can't even speculate as to what it is i mean some people and you know maybe we well, can you just this. you just did johnny or you recapped bruce's speculation yeah. and well these aren't well it's not a popular thing to talk about but no, you do not. have to ask yourself the question who are these people that can work intergenerationally for decades into hundreds of years because you can trace these people back to the American Revolution and the French Revolution and you can just keep going back from there. What is in them? Who are they? I don't know. This might sound a bit crazy, but maybe it's you see what their heritage is, their lineage is, and they know that that particular family line or whatever is, you know, loyal to this cause or, or whatever, or or they, they raise their children and their offspring to believe that doctrine. And that's what's expected of them. They're groomed from the time they're children to go into that, knowing that's what it's I, going I, I to th- be. I, I think just grooming is part of I think grooming is part of it. I was um, picking a piece that I wanted to put up last Sunday, and I ended up not using it because it was Easter. But one of the things that uh, Alan was talking about with the host was what is in these people who work intergenerationally and they keep the same agenda going forward and forward. And they, you know, the host was talking about indoctrination and grooming and training from childbirth. And Alan said, you know, it's beyond that. You're talking about an intergenerational breeding program. And you can see that the classic example that he would make was the Wedgwoods and the Darwins. But he said, if you want to have, you know, a mathematician that doesn't have a lot of emotional or moral compunction about doing something, then you breed that there is a carefully chosen woman who is also a mathematician and she is uh, high on um, strategy and low on compassion, right? And you keep breeding and breeding and breeding because they have said about themselves, and this might have been, this might also have been a Bertrand Russell quote, I'm not sure, that the, they, they see themselves as a separate species. And I think that they actually, through their own breeding, their own eugenics program, have made themselves pretty much a separate species. That's an interesting concept. I hear this all the time, and it's just it's one of those crazy uh, conspiracy theories. But people talk about the uh, the elites; they're like lizard people or something. I mean, it's, I think it's hilarious. Mm-hmm. But it um, is hilarious. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's hilarious. But it, it's hilarious. But it, but I don't laugh when I hear myself say that there's something evil. No, about no, them. I, I agree. <laughs> I agree. And and case in point of this, at least you know the prominent figure that everybody can kind of relate this to would be in my just in my own research is Klaus Schwab. If you look at Klaus Mm -hmm. Schwab, to understand who Klaus Schwab is and why he does what he does, you have to look at his father, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. If you look Mm -hmm. at what if you look at who his father was and what he did in his career throughout his life, you can understand why Klaus Schwab is the way Klaus Schwab is. That's just my opinion. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And and I think I think it goes 
it goes on the same way with with the rest of them as you're as you're describing. Yeah, I don't I can't remember now off the top of my head Klaus Schwab's wife's education. But what is interesting to me is that Klaus Schwab has two children, uh, a son and a daughter, and they are both high ranking in the World Economic Forum. I don't know if there'll be succession there, but you often have someone, you know, his father is an electrician, he becomes an electrician, these kind of things by training or whatever, or there's a, a genetic aptitude there that your mind goes there. But two, you're, you have two children and they both are completely devoted in every way to all of the philosophies of the World Economic Forum. Is this grooming and training and the way they were raised or is it genetic? I mean, um, his two kids, uh, Nicole and uh, Oliver, but I believe it's pronounced uh, Olivier or, or some, however it is mm -hmm. in, uh, in French. But um, he, you know, his, his son, Oliver, he is the head of the World Economic Forum branch in Beijing, China. Mm -hmm. She, Nicole, his daughter, is in charge of... It's something to do with environmental stuff, Wh whatever their environmental wing is uh, down there at, at Davos. That's what she's in charge of. Uh, mm -hmm. She does conferences and, and leads conferences and stuff. His wife, Hilda, uh, Klaus's wife, Hilda, again, I don't know what she has. It might be psychology uh, or something to that mm -hmm. effect. I, I can't remember right off the top of my head like you. I, I'm not sure. But I know that both of them and, and Klaus's educational history, that is nothing to shy away from either. He's a very intelligent guy. He's a very educated man. The program that he was part of at Harvard University under the tutelage of Henry Kissinger, guys like uh, John K. Galbraith and guys like uh, Herman Kahn, these individuals, Klaus Schwab was part of the uh, uh, the program that Henry Kissinger was a part of teaching at Harvard that was sponsored by the CIA. And they give mm -hmm. out one honorary degree every year. And the year that Klaus Schwab was there, he received that degree. So these are individuals. Yeah. These, and this is long before he ever was part. This is before the World Economic Forum or the European Management Symposium was ever created. And he was placed in charge of or not in charge of, I guess it was he was given a board seat immediately upon his graduation to the company that his father had a lot of shares in. And this is where he transformed that company from a machine company into a technology company. And he also worked mm -hmm. on the um, uh, a nuclear heavy water program for the South African government under apartheid. And the Swiss government covered it up. They knew about it and they covered it up. So mm -hmm. these are these are and quite frankly, I mean, that's that's a crime in and of itself right there. So mm -hmm. these these individuals and then I, you could look at guys like Bill Gates, right? Look at his father. His father ran mm -hmm. Planned Parenthood for many years. And if you look mm -hmm. at his mother, I don't know if you're familiar with his mother's background. She I've looked at it. Yes. Yes. She was on the board of IBM under Thomas Watson. Mm -hmm. So what kind of a childhood do you think that these individuals had growing up? What do you what do you think the conversations around those dinner tables were all about? And then you understand where they are today and why they're there. Yeah. Um, final few minutes here. I, I tell you what, we could spend the last couple of minutes here talking about uh, what do you have uh, up on Cutting Through the Matrix? What's the latest things that's being posted over there? And you can tell us a little bit about your podcast and how people can subscribe to that. Oh, well, thank you. Um, I, I have a podcast. It's called Real History with Melissa. And I have the last few things that I've posted have been very interesting. A couple of weeks ago, I got into a conversation about demons and that was quite interesting. And then last week, it was Darren from South Africa. And what will be going up this week is another hour with Darren where we... Last week, we talked a bit about Twitter and Elon Musk and technocracy and some very interesting things. But this week, he actually spent the hour talking about South Africa and what's, you know, his childhood there, the the end of apartheid, and then what is going on there currently. So it's interesting. And, and that's it. And then the redux that I have of Alan Watts talks that go up each Sunday, and then clips, an excerpt series that are themed in this week on Wednesday. Um, that's actually today. <laughs> uh, as soon as I post this podcast, I will be posting the first excerpt in a new series called Programmed People. And this series is going to talk about 
indoctrination and the all of the different techniques, entertainment and so forth um, that go into shaping your mind from a very, very early age. That sounds fantastic. I'm looking forward to uh, to viewing that and to uh, catching your next podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on, Melissa. We'll see you in two weeks. Yes. Yes. Thank you so much, both of you. I enjoyed myself. And we enjoy having you on here. Pleasure is always ours, and you always have a seat at our table. So we'll see you thank in you. two weeks. Absolutely. So we will go ahead and call this one done. I would like to thank you both for being here this evening. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you to all of the listeners. God bless everyone, and have a great evening.